This week's episode is kindly supported by Species Unite. Species Unite is a series of conversations with world-leading activists, advocates, artists, filmmakers and conservationists who are fighting injustice towards animals. Listen to conversations with Mercy for Animals' Leah Gosses, filmmakers Beverly and Derek Joubert, and legendary photographer Joanne MacArthur, Barbara King, whose TED Talk about animal emotions went viral, Ma Ching of Animal Hope and Wellness on his time inside Asia's dog slaughterhouses, Jan Kremer on the end of circuses, and so many others who've dedicated their lives to create a better world for all the inhabitants who share it, a world of coexistence. Find out more at speciesunite.com or click the link in the description. These things happen, you know, these big problems related to many zoonotic diseases happen because of what we do to animals. And we can kind of, you know, look for the those small moments where maybe these problems could still occur, you know, even if we didn't exploit animals by the trillions every single year. But fundamentally, what we have to learn is that when we abuse animals and we abuse nature and wildlife, the repercussions of that are far greater than just the repercussions on those animals and, and those animals in the wild. The repercussions in turn can affect every single one of us on this planet. Hi friends and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode we have Ed Winters. He's a hugely influential London-based vegan educator, public speaker and podcast host. Ed is the co-founder and co-director of Surge, an animal rights organization whose strong will is to create a world where compassion towards non-human animals is the norm. In 2016 Surge founded the Animal Rights March which saw a massive growth from 2,500 participants in London in its first year to 41,000 participants across the world in 2019. Ed has spoken at over a third of UK universities and at six Ivy League colleges, including as a guest lecturer at Harvard University. He has given speeches across the world, including at the University of Cambridge, EPFL, Google New York and Google Zurich. In the early 2019, he gave two TED Talks, reaching a total of 1.3 million views online. In October 2018, Ed also opened Unity Diner a non-profit vegan restaurant in London where all of the profits go directly back into helping animals. He is also the host of the Disclosure podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Ed is a wonderful man and has a wealth of knowledge on the topic. Please don't forget to click the link to our sponsor of this episode, Species Unite. It's a really fantastic podcast as well. You'll learn a lot of things from a lot of incredible people too. So please don't forget to click that. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Ed. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been a, a long time coming. We've talked about it for a while, and you know, you're one of the one of my good friends. And you know, whenever we sit down and have a discussion on things, and we've done a couple of podcasts together for, on other people's podcasts, and it's it's always good to you know sit and talk with you. And your kind of thoughtful and focused approach is something that really really inspires me. So I'm really really keen to to learn more about your past and learn more about your your plans for the future. Yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say. No, it's good to be here, and. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to talk about such a, a variety of things. I mean, there's so much happening right now and there's so much we can talk about that we'll definitely not be struggling for things to, to discuss, which is good. I just want to start by saying that I wasn't born vegan and I wasn't even born vegetarian. You see, for almost 21 years of my life, I consumed meat, dairy 
and egg products. It's not just that I consumed them, I loved them, right? I loved how they tasted. I'd have them every single day of my life. I looked forward to the flavors and the textures. I looked forward to getting that nutrition and that satisfaction from consuming those products. I get Domino's pizza pretty much every single week, two for Tuesday. I'd always get Texan barbecue, I'd always get meat feast, and they'd always both come with extra mozzarella and cheesy stuffed crust as well. I went into my local KFC so often that the people who worked there knew me by my name and knew what my favorite order was, which was a Zinger box meal with extra hot wings. So when I went in, they say, oh, hi Ed, you want your Zinger box meal with extra hot wings? And I'd be like, absolutely, please, as quick as you can. You see, I loved the flavor of these products. I really enjoyed them. I used to wear things made out of leather and wool and silk and down. I'd buy cosmetics like shampoos and shower gels without ever considering whether or not they were tested on animals. And going to the zoo was literally one of my favorite things to do. And I did it because I was an animal lover. I liked observing these animals. I thought it was a nice thing to do to see them. I enjoyed seeing these animals. Veganism wasn't something that I was born with. The morality of veganism wasn't something that I was born with. It's something that I grew and educated myself on and learned more and more about. To kick things off, I always like to ask my guests uh, their vegan story because that's what unites us. That's what brings us together and that's how we met. I'm sure you've obviously told the story many, many times, but for those of us who have not heard it, how did you become a vegan and how do you get involved in the movement and where did it all start for you? That's a good question. So the, the first catalyst in my change um, was to do with a chicken truck crash, which happened in May 2014. So it was uh, in the UK, just outside of Manchester. And it was a truck carrying 7,000 chickens crashing on the way to a slaughterhouse. And I remember seeing it. I was just on the BBC online reading the news and, it, and I saw the article had popped up. So I clicked on it as it had piqued my interest. And I was just really horrified by, by what I was reading. And I thought it was just really um, an absolute travesty. I had a few vegetarian friends at the time, but I'd never really considered it for myself. Um, but that just reading through that, I just realized that it was, it was absolutely absurd what we were doing to these animals because the ones who died in the crash could even be considered the lucky ones because for the ones who, well, the ones that go to the slaughterhouses, you know, in the millions every single day, when they get there, they pulled out of these crates, they're shackled by their feet, dragged to an electrified water bath, have their throats cut. It's such a brutal and horrible way to die. And I thought, if the ones who have died in this crash are the lucky ones, then what, what does that tell me about what's happening in this industry? And so I, I went vegetarian. I didn't know much about dairy or eggs at that point. And then about seven, eight months or so into being vegetarian, my girlfriend was telling me I needed to watch this documentary, Earthlings. She'd seen it shared on social media. Um, and so she really wanted to watch it, but she wanted me to watch it with her. And I was super against it. I didn't want to do it. I knew that it was about veganism. And I was one of these vegetarians who thought that being vegetarian was enough. And because animals don't have to die for milk and for eggs, that being vegan was extreme and unnecessary. Um, but then one day she persuaded me to watch it. And I did. And, and, and from that point on, all of a sudden, veganism didn't seem so extreme. Um, and that's really what then caused me to be vegan. Um, and then after that, watch Cowspiracy, realize the magnitude of how what we do to animals is bigger than just animals, but of course impacts every single one of us, including animals in the wild who I'd not really considered before, and just started to learn more and more and more. And then after a little while, I realized I needed to become more involved as a, an advocate and an activist. And then that process of learning and watching documentaries and, and, and seeing online graphic footage and uh, just reading about what we do to animals in, in, in its entirety, because there's so much that I didn't even realize until I started delving into it. After absorbing all this information, 
I realized that I needed to speak out because if I didn't, then who else would? So that's why I decided to do that as well. Mm, amazing story. And, and what's remarkable, incredible is all this has happened in just with three short years, three and a half short years? Well, actually, so I started my YouTube four years ago. Um, so it's been veganism for five years and then, yeah, activism for four years. So much has happened in that time. Obviously, I've known you in that time and we've both worked together on many things and kind of, you know, been involved in many things together. And it's been an incredible experience and, and a bit of a roller coaster, really, with many highs and lots of lows and lots of like wins and a few kind of, you know, obstacles and challenges. Going back to that first moment where you watched that story and you found out what happened to those chickens, what do you think was different about that time compared to the other times where you you sat down? Down to a, pl a plate of animal products or, or a piece of meat and what changed within your mind you know because I assume as an intelligent young man you would have known that animals were slaughtered for your food what do you think it was about that moment that kind of shifted things for you to make you think a little bit more about those individuals yeah, that's actually a, a really good question I mean you're right I think sometimes I think as vegans we can say you know people aren't aware but I think we're always aware of what happens but there has to be something that makes our awareness compelling enough to act upon so I definitely knew that animals were slaughtered and, and you know I'd, I'd seen pictures before no doubt of chickens in farms or animals in slaughterhouses. I mean we, we can't really avoid them we're going to see them at some point so I definitely had probably seen seen these pictures or even clips well, maybe not clips but definitely pictures and I definitely knew these animals were slaughtered I think I actually have been reflecting on this quite a lot because this is something I've been trying to get my head around as well. Is what why was that point in time the thing that caused me to have such a radical change in mindset? And I think it had been a slow progressive build-up. You know, I remember when Blackfish came out, for example, um, my girlfriend and I went to see that in the cinema, and we didn't really care too much about animal rights at that point. But we went to see it because we were intrigued by the trailer and we thought we'd go see it. And so we went, we saw that and we realized that SeaWorld and the incarceration of cetaceans was was immoral. And that was the, kind of the first step. And then we went to a zoo one time, Barcelona Zoo. And while we were wandering around, wandering around the zoo, we realized how terrible zoos were in general. We saw like a brown bear who was just looking so sad and depressed, just staring at this wall. And we, we kind of looked at each other and thought, this is terrible. You know, we're, we're paying to come to a zoo to look at these animals and all these animals look so unhappy and we're perpetuating their suffering and so after that we realized that it wasn't just about cetaceans it's about zoos in general uh, and animals being incarcerated and so i think it was just this was all in the space of a year or so so this this very kind of gradual slow build-up where this was wrong and then i realized that this meant that this must also be wrong and then if this aspect of animal suffering is wrong then of course what we do to animals for food must be wrong and so i think it was just this very gradual slow process of piecing things together little by little like a, a jigsaw almost and and then the chicken truck crash was a big piece of the jigsaw and then earthlings of course was you know the whole rest of that jigsaw so i think i think it's probably the same with everyone is we have like these these pinpoint moments where we go well, that's where I realized I had to change. But what we maybe don't think about is all those smaller little moments that have happened throughout our lives that have built up to the point where we realize that this has to be that big moment. It is. It's a series of, of doors unlocking, isn't it? As you reach that point of realization and you go from door to door and each key is a different piece of information or a different person that, that kind of helps you see that little bit deeper into that realization that you're unlocking. And when you finally get to the end, you suddenly have this aha moment, which a lot of people talk about. But as you say, it's a really good point that it's not just one point in time. It's a series of events that led to that 
realization elevating what I believe your consciousness to the understanding that all life is precious and especially sentient life and that we really have no right to take the life of others, human or non-human, for the sake of a sandwich or a burger. But isn't it incredible and isn't it fascinating that we spent a lot of our young lives completely oblivious to this no one tells us about it no one talks about it you know unless we've grown up in a vegetarian family or uh, a family that's Hare Krishna or Jain or uh, perhaps even Buddhist maybe you know it, in our culture in our western culture there isn't a conversation about the importance and the majesty and the beauty of animals as individuals and so why is it then when we look at non-human animals it's okay to hurt them as long as we as the oppressor feel some sort of gratification sensory pleasure because of the exploitation that's done to them. We say, well, we're at the top of the food chain and therefore other animals eat other animals as well. And so why can't we if we are at the top of the food chain? Now, of course, other animals do eat other animals, but they do so out of necessity because they have to to survive. Sometimes people say to me, all right then, Ed, why don't you go into the savannah, look a lion in the eyes and tell them they should be vegan? And I'm like, because I'm not crazy, right? That's why, right? Because I don't want to be eaten. That's why. Do you, compared the person to who you were, the, I think you often joke about the McDonald's eating Ed and the Ed that is now, do you see a huge gap and sort of a chasm in, in, in how you've changed as a person? In so many ways. And it's not even just about how I view animals that's changed. It's just, I think, making that a, that conscious shift to seeing or appreciating life in a different way to how you did before, I think changes you in, in many ways. And so there's definitely a huge shift just in the way that I, I perceive the world and I perceive humans and non-humans within that world. But even just from a personal level of how I view myself and my own participation in this world as well. So I think definitely you do feel very different. I, I often say that I can't remember the person I used to be. Like I think about who I was, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, and I don't really recognize that person. You know, the person that went to KFC all the time, the person that went to McDonald's, the person that ordered Domino's pizza, the person who used to laugh at vegans and vegetarians. You know, I can't picture myself as being that person. But at the same time, I think that person it feels very familiar because it is that kind of historical footprint of who you were and as, as we said before these little bits of your history have led you up to this point and so it, it can be hard to think about the person you used to be but I think also intrinsically it's important to remember so that we can view others within that same transition if you like to realize that people that used to or who currently do laugh at vegetarians you know, vegans now as the case would be people laugh at vegans they are no different to the person that we used to be for a lot of us, me, you know, me included in that situation. And so if they're no different to the person I used to be, then that means that in the future, there may be no different to the person I am now. And so I think I don't often relate to the person I used to be, but I try very hard to relate to that person because through relating to that person, I can relate to the people I'm trying to influence to become vegan in their current state, so to speak. Yeah, influencing people in their current state is a really interesting discussion point because as we evolve through this realization, we go through many phases. We often joke about the angry vegan, uh, the vegan, kind of the preachy vegan. Did you go through that phase and did you go through the sort of you know layers of like anger and resentment and frustration? And Yeah, definitely. That's another great question. Yeah, I, I did. Um, in fact, I was just talking about this today or yesterday it might have been, just talking about how 
views and feelings change and it's not necessarily that you become less angry i think it's just that you, you understand that emotion better and you understand how to use it better and so when i first went vegan and i think for, for those of us who is in count first go vegan because of earthlings or a movie that's very graphic when we see all that graphic footage and we realize the brutality of what we do to animals i mean some people make that connection by just thinking about their pets and then relating it to other other animals that we slaughter but some people need that graphic footage and i was one of those people who needed that graphic footage but i think the problem is when you when you enter veganism through graphic footage you undeniably take an element of anger i think anger at yourself for the person that you used to be for the person who perpetuated these systems so anger at yourself internalized anger but then anger at society in general anger at maybe your loved ones who still do these things angry at the systems that perpetuate these these things and so you do take a lot of that frustration and, and, and anger with you. And I think it's very normal at the beginning of veganism or your vegan, your veganism to be feeling quite lost, maybe a little bit hopeless, maybe a little bit full of, of anger that you don't know what to do with. And if you haven't made vegan friends yet, or, or you know, you're trying to talk to your friends and family and they're not listening, it can feel quite isolating. And I think I certainly experienced that for a while where it was just me and my partner who had gone vegan together. We were quite angry at the situation. We didn't really know any other vegans at all. We didn't really know anything about the activism community, so didn't know how to meet other vegans. And so we, we kind of left this in this situation of, of kind of isolation, but an isolation that was worthwhile doing, but left us with this feeling of frustration at the world that we were in. So I definitely was that angry vegan for a while. Uh, even when I started my activism, I part of the reason I started was because I had this emotion that I needed to do something with. And I think that's really important as well, that when we experience these emotions, whether they might be sadness or, or anger, or whatever emotion they may be on that, on that spectrum, it's important that we then do something with it because we don't just want to sit with it, but not be actively doing something to, you know, productive with it. So I think that's what led me to becoming more vocal and ultimately becoming an advocate is because I had these feelings that I was frustrated with the world that we lived in. I was frustrated that my family hadn't responded the way that I wanted them to, or that my old friends hadn't responded the way that I wanted them to. And I was just frustrated that we, we live in a world where such violent things are happening every single second of the day to the most vulnerable beings that exist on this planet. And so I felt that I had to do something. And, and, and through becoming an advocate, I was able to understand my emotion better and, and become less of that angry vegan. And now, Undeniably, we use the word preachy as well, and undeniably, I'm very preachy. And that, that will never change, right? The preachiness of it. But I think the way that I conduct myself related to how my anger influences me is something that's changed quite a lot. Um, and I think that that can happen for a lot of us is we start to move through these phases where angry, start to speak up, use the anger productively. And then through using the anger productively to speak up or that frustration or sadness, whatever emotion drives us in that sense, through doing that, we're able to better understand ourselves, better understand psychology of people, what holds them back, what encourages them to. And then through having productive conversations and productive activist experiences, we start to feel a little bit more hopeful, I think. Well, that, that's what's happened for me at least. When we have conversations with people about veganism, I guess the imperative isn't to, to, to offload lots of information onto them because information can be heavy and sometimes isn't always productive. I, I, I view these conversations as more being a, a, a way or a manner in which we can spark just a thought in someone's head to make them question themselves. And that's what's really wonderful about the Socratic method is because the onus is on you asking questions, always asking questions. It allows the person you're speaking to to understand themselves better and understand how they feel better. I, I fundamentally believe that veganism isn't, isn't it's not, 
It's not something you have to give someone, right? Like the morals and philosophy of veganism isn't something that someone has to be given, but it's something they just have to rediscover in themselves. Moving on to sort of where you are, where you were after you had these realizations, you decided to get onto social media and use it to spread this message. And as, as we've discussed, this message and your style and your kind of way in which you communicate has evolved with time and has moved from, from as you said, from an angry vegan to a preachy vegan, but a, a strategically preachy vegan as well, because preaching often has a bit of a bad rap, doesn't it? It has a bad reputation. We have images of people standing on soapboxes, waving their fists at people. Where's the line between preachiness and kind of, you know, scaring people? Because obviously there is a real gamut of techniques in, in which you want to influence people and communicate with people. I know that a lot of vegans, myself included in the beginning, struggled with not crossing that line to the point where people feel so intimidated and so threatened by the message because we are challenging social norms here. We are challenging what is a 90, 99% of the population uh, do as part of their life. They see eating animals, as Dr. Melanie Joy says, is normal, needed, and necessary. And we have to do it. And if we don't do it, we'll die. And then along comes Ed or Robbie saying, no, 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 no. What you're doing is damaging the planet. It's bad for your health. It's, it's violence. And they go, pardon <laughs> how i don't understand and obviously the, the anger comes and the, the threat in nature so how do we balance that tapping into the mind of that person without them without the drawbridges coming up and the person's shutting down and closing off to us because ultimately we want them to listen yes yes well i think that's that's one of the trickier aspects isn't it of, of, of advocacy and communication when especially when it comes to veganism and i think part of it relates to what we we're saying before about being in touch with the person that you used to be you know remembering how you used to view vegans how you used to treat animals why you used to do those things as well that why is really important you know we sometimes remember that we did it, of course but we don't often think about well, well why was it that we did those things obviously those factors include things like taste and convenience, culture, habit, families, traditions. And lo and behold, all the reasons why we used to do it are the same reasons why the people that we're currently talking to still do it. It's very, it's very unlikely that they're going to have a reason that wasn't a reason you used to have as well, or you used to use. So I think being in touch with the person you used to be is, is really important because that allows you to come from a place of empathy. And empathy doesn't mean you have to agree or you have to validate or that you have to somehow not feel, that you don't have to be annoyed at what the person is, is justifying. Empathy just merely means that you try and reason why they're explaining themselves in the way or explain their actions in the way that they are. So I think when we relate to ourselves or we put ourselves in the, in the shoes of that person, remember who we used to be, we allow, we're allowing ourselves to empathize with the person we're talking to. And if we can come from a place of empathy, we're not coming from a place where the person feels like we're judging them or outwardly going out of our way to make them feel uncomfortable because that's not that's not what we want to do so empathizing with the person and but more importantly trying to understand why they're using the arguments that they are is really important and then listening to people as well i think another issue and, and i don't believe this to be truly representative but we there's this idea that vegans these militant preachy vegans who who are morally superior who who perceive themselves to be morally righteous who don't want to listen to anyone else and want you to just conform to what they want and so as soon as you start listening to someone and by the way i don't think that's representative of veganism it's just a you know slanderous tactic that that people who are against veganism use but the moment we start listening to people and we start asking them questions and then actually fully giving them our attention in the conversation, we start to take away those preconceived notions of what vegan activists 
are supposed to be like. And all of a sudden we go, well, this, this person's listening to me. They're having a polite conversation with me. They seem actively interested in what I'm saying. Um, they're empathizing with me and, and relating my experience to their experience. And all of a sudden you're going, well, how does this tally up against what I've been told vegans are supposed to be like? And so I think one of the challenges that we have is having to break down all these preconceived ideas of what being a vegan looks like to a non-vegan. Like I was saying, it doesn't mean we have to be passive or it doesn't mean that we have to validate what people are saying their arguments. It just means that we have to go something along the lines of, you know, someone might say, well, I like how meat tastes. Uh, and our first reaction might be to be angry because that's a terrible reason to do what we do to animals. It's, it's potentially one of the most, you know, absurd reasons to harm someone else, sensory pleasure, of course. But that's why we used to do it as well. And so if we can say, you know, well, I used to be the same. I used to enjoy KFC. I had it twice a week, you know, most weeks. I loved the taste of fried chicken. But then I asked myself, what has higher value taste or life? Well, what do you think about that question? And all of a sudden, the person doesn't feel threatened because you're relating your experience back to them. So you're not saying you're a bad person because you used to be that person as well. But then you're asking them a question that means that you're listening to them, but you're asking them to think deeply for themselves. And, and I think that shows a great amount of respect. Because another thing is vegans are perceived to not show respect to non-vegans, right? And so if we can ask people questions, we're actually respecting their intellectual capacity to think rationally and deeply about their belief systems and about their morals, which is something that we don't often ask people to do, to think deeply about their actions. And so when we ask someone a question, we listen to their response, and then we relate our experience to their response. I think it shows respect. So I think through those kind of communication tactics, that's how we can somehow break down these these barriers and um, and sometimes these problems that we face where conversations can become aggressive or um, you know wholly ineffective and, and quite destructive. And it's not always easy because people will say some really outlandish things, and and sometimes people will say things particularly to hurt you. And I think what we have to realize in that scenario is when someone's saying something to try and actively hurt you, it's because they're not confident enough to actually argue their belief system and so if they're trying to hurt you like your family members trying to offend you it's difficult but it shows that they're actually unable to intellectually rationalize what they're trying to stand for or, or stand against in the conversation about veganism so trying to understand why people talk in the way they do can be helpful to us and it means that even in those situations where things become quite heightened we can still make sure that we don't rise to it because we're seen through what's happening. It's like a facade, isn't it? People put up this, this kind of like barrier, this, this, this kind of wall in front of them. And then we take the wall on face value, but we need to look behind the wall to see what's actually been implied by the way people are talking. And I think that can help. But it's, it's a minefield, isn't it? There's so much to consider, which is why it's so tricky, I think. Psychology and human psychology is a fascinating, multi-layered, multifaceted skill and art form um, you often talk about the socratic method which is what you described where you ask a question rather than making a statement so you could go to a person and say animal cruelty is wrong and you're bound to get a defensive mechanism a defensive reaction from the person but what you often do uh, and using the socratic method is say do you think animal cruelty is wrong so you're inquiring with the person other methods are mirroring if your person is having a conversation repeating two or three words uh, on the end of the sentence that they ask or the statement that they make creates a bit of uh, a discussion around the topic that they're asking about and also something called labeling as well where if a person is appearing to be angry or frustrated you label that emotion you say it seems like you're really angry or it seems like you're really frustrated so rather than reacting to a person's anger or frustration you label it and it gives them and then you take a moment and you pause and it gives them a moment to think about how they're reacting and how they're behaving and often 
way people behave with their anger or their frustration is completely unconscious because there is a biological mechanism within the human body, within the brain, that is geared to protect us and to protect core beliefs. I've talked about this before, I think, with you about the neurotransmitter neuropinephrine, which actually increases in, in volume when a person feels threatened or in danger. And when we come to people, we talk to people, if we raise our voices or we wave our hands around, they become slightly fearful, adrenaline goes up, neuropinephrine goes up, and studies show that it actually creates narrow-mindedness. And it's used in politics, it's used in the politics of fear, where people create a sense of fear, of uncertainty, and actually people become narrow-minded and almost impossible to talk to. You can't have that inception moment where you plant the idea in the mind of the person because the you know, the evolutionary biological mechanisms have built up a, a, a force field, you could say, around a person's core beliefs. Because if this wasn't the case, I could say, Ed, it's really good if you just go and jump off that cliff. It would be really good. And you'd be like, oh, I trust Robbie. Okay, I'm going to do it. Right. You know, there isn't a mechanism there. Our core beliefs, which are like self-preservation, safety, you know, our brains have evolved over the millions of years to protect us and these core beliefs that we should eat animals and kill animals that it's normal need and necessary are instilled in us so deeply and often talk about the tree of carnism as this tree with roots deep into our culture um, and that the only way that we can uproot this tree is to go straight to the root i think a uh, uh, peace activist um Henry William Thoreau said, there are a thousand people striking at the branches of oppression and only one striking at the root. And this idea that, you know, people kind of often only see the the, the outcome, the, the kind of effects of violence, of oppression, but very few people are going right down into the root, which I do believe you are doing. You're focusing on education. You're focusing on unlocking that realization through tapping in to the psychological intricacies of human beings and it is a process and I definitely observed you move through that process moving on to sort of that process and the and the tactics and skills and things that you use on a daily basis first of all the first question is how does it feel to have found something that gives you that sense of purpose and how do you feel like it's changed you as a person that's hard isn't it because I mean it, it feels rewarding of course I mean that's that's to be expected I'd always been rather aimless, I suppose, you know, not not really sure what to do. I'd had ideas of things I wanted to do growing up, of course, as we all do. But then to find something that you feel passionate about and gives you a sense of purpose, it, it's, it's something that we all, I think people in life are always looking for, aren't they? And that's, that's what is, is great about standing up for social justice issues is that it gives you a sense of purpose, which is an important driver in uh, in, in, I guess in your in your well being as well to make sure that you feel like you, your your role in this planet is something that can bring about positive change as well, rather than just being someone who takes. You know, because I think we often have this conflict where when we start to become in tune with these issues, we start to feel a sense of guilt for us because we're part of these problems simply by our existence. You know, when it comes to environmental problems and such but by actually then advocating in on behalf of these these issues and, and on behalf of animals and, and veganism it gives you a sense of purpose to keep going and to keep feeling motivated and to know that you can bring about change and so i think that sense of purpose is really important for us all to find and i'm very lucky to have found that within my own life as well and the second part of your question was how how's it changed was that how's it changed me is that what you think how's it changed you yeah how yeah. do you feel like it's how how's it helped you evolve as a person yeah. having that in your life I think, again, it, it, it kind of what I was just saying, it, it gives you a sense of purpose, obviously, because that's what we're talking about. What I guess what I mean by that is it really it 
allows you to feel that your life isn't just this temporary thing, right? Like that if we can all band together and, and unify and, and work together to bring about something that substantially helps others in the future, that actually our existence transcends beyond just the physical, you know, manifestation of it right now and means that we can actually enact bigger change that even when we're not around, others can feel the benefits of. And so I think knowing that together collectively, we can all do that as, as, a, as a movement provides my days with a sense of fulfillment that I wouldn't have had if it was just about, you know, what do I want to do with my life? How am I going to achieve my personal goals? And of course, my personal goals involve helping others, helping the planet, helping animals. And so that that that, that couples nicely. But I think knowing that you're a part of something bigger and you're a part of something that if all being well, can bring about positive change in the future. That gives you a different outlook on life. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I've never been a religious person, but I know that religious people, I guess it's a similar concept, isn't it? It's like, this is my life now, but after my life is over, this that's when the good stuff happens, right? And it's not like that's what I'm describing, but it's knowing that existence isn't just about what you do it in the time that you're physically alive, but existence can be something bigger than that if you decide that your purpose is to try and help and I suppose bring about positive societal changes, which I guess is what we're all trying to do. So I think it's about maybe giving yourself a sense of belonging that's bigger than just where you physically are at that time. Which has high value? What justification would you use? Does the commodification of animals need a different form of justification to the commodification of humans? Or do the two both come symbiotically together based on the fact that we are all alive, conscious and sentient? And through those basic foundations of what it means to be alive, should we all be considered in the same circle of moral compassion? And importantly, what do we define our moral code as being? How do we define our view of the world? What do we think of other cultures and the actions that they commit? Do we think that they're acceptable or not acceptable? And if we think they're not acceptable, then what does that tell us about what we do to animals and how we view animals? And importantly, if our environment's at risk, then why wouldn't we change? Why wouldn't we take a long, hard look at ourselves and say, with so much on the line and so much at stake, both our planet, the animals, and potentially our own health as well, what stops us from making that change? And what stops us from looking with a critical eye at the things that we do? One of the ways in which you spread the message is through public speaking. You've done 107 talks uh, to 27,000 people in 12 months, and you've had 33,248 people sign your pledge to go vegan, which is a huge amount and an incredible achievement. Who, uh, who is the person who started public speaking? Who is he now? Because I, again, we're talking that the theme of this podcast is all about personal change. Public speaking is absolutely terrifying for most people. And I think most people compare it uh, to death. Most people would rather die than stand up in front of a huge group of people because you seem to sort of have nailed it. You swan in, you know, and you kind of speak with such grace and, and calmness. How have you created that? And fostered that because obviously that would have required practice and and and, and study and you know who, how have you gone through that actually I, I remember the first talk i ever did on veganism it was a, a, a vegan festival um in lincoln i think it was lincoln vegan festival and i think there was about 20 people in the room um and i was so nervous uh my heart was racing i had my my pieces of paper with all my notes written and i had I put them on a table next to me so that i could always look at them when i needed to uh, and it is it's incredibly nerve-wracking i think we all have you know terrible memories of being in school or, or college or whatever and having to do like class presentations and just they're just the most you know terrible parts of of the work often so i i was very very nervous but with, with everything in life you know 
repetition and practice eases those those nerves and so after a while I kind of flung myself in the deep end and just committed to doing as much public speaking as possible because because I realized that it was through doing that that I would actually be able to, to improve myself and I look back on my old videos even even the speech that I did two years ago which is like the one on my YouTube which which is like my most popular video I look back on that and I think oh this things I definitely want to do differently now. And that's that's the beauty, I think, of life and the beauty of being you know, an activist and, and whatever, is that you constantly are striving to improve and learn and get better. And the fact that you can look at yourself two years ago and say, oh, I, you know, I do things differently now, I think is really, is, is an important thing. So for me, it's just definitely been about practice and repetition. Also, the good thing about having like a YouTube channel and uploading content is it gives you really honest time to, to, to look at yourself and realize what you're doing that's good and what you're doing that's not so good. And so I can look at my mannerisms, my, you know, maybe terms that I'm using, body language, um, and I can look at myself quite, you know, critically, you know, in a positive way, self-critically and go, well, this body language here is not so good. What does this look like? Are oh, your fists, you know, you're clenching your fists a little bit because you seem a bit nervous. Like, are you, you know, doing strange things? And so it gives you that period. So I think one thing that's helped me is, is having the chance to review footage, having the chance to look over how I used to be and make those changes. Throughout the past 18 months, Surge have had hidden cameras placed in dairy farms around the UK. What we have documented has shocked us. The dairy industry is painted as a wholesome industry where the animals are treated with care and compassion. Grazing dairy cows and adverts perpetuating these ideas reinforce the notion that animals don't suffer for dairy products. However, the footage that we have acquired tells a very different story to the one the industry tells us. Animals being systematically exploited and abused. Farmers showing contempt towards the animals, violently beating them and showing a complete disregard for their life. I'm going to say this because I'm biased, but YouTube is such a wonderful resource for so many things. And there's loads of videos on there about, you know, body language, about um, you know, vocal um, tone, about public speaking. And so it's a great resource to learn about a whole you know variety of different skills that you can use in life. And so I think it's just definitely always practice and when I talk now obviously my talks a lot of them are, are, are continuously using the same themes uh, as, as different studies come out my, my, my talks will change in terms of some of the content if I learn some new information I'll incorporate that into the talks but the overarching themes of my talks are always the same you know it's always about you know the moral implications of what we do to animals you know the the ethical you know um absurdity of, of how we use others and so because those themes are the same it allows me to constantly keep practicing them and so from one speech i might try something different i think oh, i really liked that i'm going to incorporate that into my speech now and so the next day when i do the same speech again i'm going to incorporate that and then it becomes part of my my speech long term and so because you're talking about the same things over and over again it's just a, a repetition it's like i used to be a musician so i used to do some gigs and and eventually you've played a song enough times you remember how to play that song right? or actors they learn a script they know the script and it's the same with doing like public speaking once you've said the same thing enough times you don't need a visual guide there or a piece of paper or you don't need to feel as nervous because it's so locked into your head that you just you know start talking as if you because you do know what what you want to say it's just practice it really is and it takes time and there's some days you're going to do it and you're not going to be very happy some you know, speeches you're going to do, you're going to be like, I really should have done that better, or that could have been more powerful, or maybe I seemed a bit nervous, or maybe I was a bit nervous. And it's always going to fluctuate. But I think the general rule is the more you do something, the better you get at it. And hopefully that's what I found within myself and will will continue to the, the longer I do it.
Public speaking is a powerful tool to create change. I read the book by Guy, is it Guy Ross, I think, who's the creator of TED. And he said, as a public speaker, it is your job to take an idea and a concept and dismantle it and break it into words and send it through the air um, into the ears of the other person on the other side of the room. And then they absorb it and put it back together in their own minds. And that is like magic. And when you kind of realize that and you realize, and this is the wonder and the joy of communication between human beings, that we have the power to unlock realization and unlock knowing within each other. And it's one of our greatest assets and one of our greatest gifts to use our voice, literally and actually to use our voice to create real change. And when we speak to large groups of people, they then go on to tell other people and it creates a domino effect, which as we hope as vegan advocates will ripple across the planet. And it does. And it is, you know, we have seen huge change and huge shifts um, because of these messages. Now, when it comes to the ripple, what point was there when you suddenly realized, oh, this is working. My videos are working. People are listening. Was there an, a sudden moment or has it been gradual? Uh, I would say definitely gradual. Um, I think if I could pinpoint one moment, it would be the speech that I did two years ago because when I uploaded that, it just instantly did really well. And then on Facebook, it was racking up millions of views. And so that was when I realized, oh, actually, no, there is there is power in, in, in um, uploading and there's power in um, public speaking and, and mixing those two together, the social media, the public speaking. I think that was definitely a big moment, but it's definitely been gradual. It's it's always really hard because I don't think, and I'm not sure if this will this ever changes for someone, but there's something very unique about having someone in person say something to you. You know, when someone comes up to you and they say, you know, you know, you you helped me in my vegan journey, or you know, I saw this video of yours and it really encouraged me to think differently. That that's an incredibly empowering thing to hear, and it's an incredibly rewarding and humbling thing to hear. And so I can't really pinpoint. Little things, but I think the gradual process of going to events or, or being in environments where people come up to come up to me and will express, you know, that my content has been a part of their vegan journey and helps them in that way. That for me is definitely the when that started happening. That was when I realized actually, oh, this is something that is really rewarding and worthwhile and, and can have really you know positive impacts on people's lives. And so I think with most things, it's definitely a gradual process and. I, I just hope that in, in, in the future I can look back and, and have like that feeling of that gradual thing again where I've gone, oh, well, now compared to then, it's, you know, I'm feeling that, that it's even progressed from that point. And so it's definitely gradual, I think, but it's always a, it's a strange thing, you know. I'm sure you get it as well. It's, it's an unusual thing, but it's, 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 we live in a very unique time. It's like what we were saying before about, you know, soapboxes, isn't it? I think back in the day, soapboxes were the only way we could get the message out. You know, standing at a speaker's corner in Hyde Park and projecting your views to people was was one of the only ways you could get a message heard. It was very hard to, to kind of have that message heard any other way. But now we live in a time where we can be more subtle with our communication and we have a variety of tools and a huge amount of technology that we can use to make sure that what we want to say and our message is heard by a huge number of people. And so we do have a special advantage living in the generation that we do and the time that we do. Um, and so I think because of that, we can feel the the rewards of having been a, or being able to use our voice in a way that before previous generations definitely wouldn't have been able to. One of the challenges of this age, as you talk, is misinformation, disinformation, fake news, slander, people who have ill will uh, towards us as individuals or the movement at large, if they have the skills and they have the money, and they have the know-how, they can really cause a lot of damage. And whether that's articles or videos, you've personally faced 
uh, a number of kind of, and we're not going to name any names because I don't want to give them oxygen, but there have been times where you have faced challenges with people putting false information out there. How how have you been able to sort of like get through that kind of stuff? Because and I imagine sometimes it could feel quite scary that there are people out there who have who have it in for us, despite the fact that we feel that what we're doing is good for the world. How have you managed to sort of move through those phases? Again, it's, it's that point of uh, long periods of time when you've done something for a while, you're able to not only improve yourself in terms of your activism capabilities, your advocacy capabilities, but you're also able to kind of disregard the fact that, of course, there's going to be groups, there's going to be you know articles out there that are trying to discredit the information that we put across. And so I think, I think when it comes to to kind of the bigger the bigger implication of having you know these tactics that are used against you know us as a movement i think it's just you've got to kind of take it with a pinch of salt right and also view things in, in, in as a bigger picture i mean there's you know we saw that bbc article I, I think it might be doing the rounds again talking about how vegans are going to have um in the long run are going to have you know decreasing brain performance or something and 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 that was debunked when it came out you know uh, but these things get picked up and they get recycled. But I think in, in the bigger scheme of everything, has that article actually really impacted how people are changing and how people are living? No, no, not really. I mean, for example, even during this pandemic, there was something, I think it was in the, the Independent today, saying that 20% of Britons are reducing their meat consumption during the pandemic and 15% are reducing their dairy and egg consumption. And then it said that 50% of, of that group of people are doing so because of animal rights and the environment so we see these these things happen but in in the bigger picture it might influence a small group of people but the actual mass of people are still being pushed in that direction because even through misinformation and through videos online and through articles and such the the, the purity of the information still pushes through because there's an abundance of it now but also the, the power of it is a lot more persuasive than some bogus you know video or article or whatever you see and so even on a personal level when you see these things over time you realize that actually the impact they have is, is a lot smaller than sometimes we might build them up to be within our within our group you know within our echo chamber so to speak but actually to the general audience the general public and the people that are seeing them more objectively I don't think it has as big an impact as we sometimes fear it does, especially with media and, and, and those smear tactics that we see. Actually, it's just more of a weakness than a strength because when these articles come out and we see this misinformation and we see this, this as we could say, slander towards you know what it is we're representing, we realize that that's the best that they've got. And, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't seem that important anymore because you realize that the only thing that they have to offer is something that's fabricated and is something that's misinformation, something that's a lie. And you think, well, hang on a minute. If that's all they've got, then what do we need to worry about? Because we're not actually facing anything other than the spread of misinformation and, and, and the cure to misinformation is an abundance of, of facts, right? And, and, and truth. And so we just have to keep pushing that out. And over time that pushes away that misinformation and reveals the people that are projecting the misinformation to be weak. And I think that that weakness is something that will ultimately destroy them because it's the weakness that shows their vulnerability and inability to actually defend their position. Instead, they have to resort to uh, more misinformation or, or fabricated studies, as, as we see often with the meat, dairy and egg industries. The internet is a, a breeding ground of uh, misinformation, but also conspiracies. <laughs> there seems to be uh, this tendency of humankind to absorb uh, some information, disregard others, and sort of hold on to it in an almost obsessive kind of way. 
as you know, I'm interested in psychology and particularly the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is this tendency of people who don't know very much, uh, who feel that they know more than they know, and often the loudest uh, and the most aggressive. And as you pointed out, often a very small group of people, but they seem to create a lot of trouble for, for us in the vegan movement. But in, in other movements as well and in other groups of people. What are some of the craziest conspiracies you've ever heard about yourself? Often with vegans, the problem that we face is that we get lumped into that kind of category, don't we? It's, it's not like we're, we're accused of perpetuating conspiracy, but it's almost like we're accused of building up something that isn't truly representative, or isn't real. And I think we sometimes get labelled as being that small minority of a very loud voice, don't we? And I think what, what's always interesting is a lot of these people that that speak of these ideas, they're not basing it on any on any formal rational evidence. Like you say, it's that Danny, Diane Kruning effect, is it the one? Dun, Dunning Kruger. Dunning Kruger, exactly. It is such an appeal to that, but and I think the dangerous thing is vegans sometimes get labelled as being part of that. I mean, on on a very small scale, I, sometimes farmers will say, "Oh, the city folk that have no idea what they're talking about, pretending to be experts." And it's like, well, actually, what we do as vegans is we're not creating information. We're merely regurgitating the information that actual experts have, have put across. And so, you know, we're citing studies and peer-reviewed evidence and, you know, empirical data that really highlights these, these points. But then we find people on the other end who are arguing against us. They're the ones that are appealing to pseudoscience or they're, they're fabricating information or, or they're just, you know, making claims that are not based or have any foundation in any, any logic or common sense. And so there is this weird situation where vegans, I think, get confused get accused of being the one spreading you know conspiracy and misinformation but actually ultimately we're just really as vegans we're just voices for the scientists and for the people that have done all the information before and continue to do we're merely just vocalizing that information in a way that hopefully means it gets out to people because obviously you know that's one thing that must drive people within these scientific communities crazy as they do all this you know all these studies they release all this evidence and then no one really pays any attention to it and so i think it's our information to make sure that people do pay attention to it this is what's happening in slaughterhouses this is what what happens in slaughterhouses does to our environment but yeah from a personal perspective it's just it's just stuff like that really it's just this this complete like you just got to think to yourself like where does that come from like how how do you possibly think that's you know an insult or holds any veracity or is something that would possibly affect how a vegan activist works by making a claim that no one no one's going to believe so it is a, an interesting world, isn't it, in that sense? Asking people to stay at home to use this time to attack the virus. Around the world right now, hundreds of millions of people are at home, either through self-isolation or forced quarantine. We are living through an unprecedented situation. The everyday aspects of our life that we have always taken for granted have been taken from us, if only for the time being. And even though this will pass, living in isolation with our desire for contact, communication and connection being compromised is undeniably hard and both physically and mentally draining. Yet for most of us, this time will exist as nothing more than an inconvenience, our current hardships created to protect those more vulnerable in society than we are, and to protect healthcare workers who show endless bravery by saving lives every day. In reality, it has never been easier to live through prolonged periods of quarantine. We have Netflix, YouTube and social media. We can watch movies, play video games, listen to music, read, write, pick up a new hobby, exercise, meditate. We live in a time where we can easily distract ourselves, and even though we may feel upset that our freedoms have been restricted for now, we should at least feel grateful that we have had, and will have again, the freedoms we have until this point, under-appreciated. 
Moving on to the current climate. So the world is currently gripped by uh, a pandemic, a coronavirus named COVID-19 pandemic, a virus that has what we believe, or the current consensus is, came from a wet market where animals, wild and mostly wild animals, are kept in cramped, dirty, disgusting conditions. We can go into, I would like to sort of talk a bit about the sort of misinformation campaigns as well, but what are the sort of main lessons that we can learn from your perspective uh, about the situation humanity finds itself in right now? Yes, yeah, I mean, it's such an important thing to talk about, isn't it, what's happening now? These things happen, you know, these big problems related to many zoonotic diseases happen because of what we do to animals. And we can kind of, you know, look for the, the, the kind of those small moments where maybe these problems could still occur, you know, even if we didn't exploit animals by the trillions every single year. But fundamentally, what we have to learn is that when we abuse animals and we abuse nature and wildlife, the repercussions of that are far greater than just the, the, the repercussions on those animals and, and those animals in the wild. The repercussions in turn can affect every single one of us on this planet. The, the United Nations states the two biggest threats to human survival, to global human health, is climate change and pandemics. And, and the leading contributors in, in, in many aspects to, to both of those things is what we do to animals. I mean, we can you know, certainly alleviate many aspects of climate change by adopting a vegan lifestyle. But not only that, when it comes to pandemics, we can alleviate the biggest problems related to the creation of new zoonotic disease, uh, diseases and outbreaks by no longer exploiting animals. And so the, the biggest lesson that we have to learn from this, I think, is, is firstly that in the bigger picture, we've been very fortunate. You know, we, we have a global pandemic that's caused untold suffering, that's caused huge amounts of destruction both to societies and the economy. But actually, on reflection, it could have been so much worse. And we have to be very fortunate to think that actually the virus that we've got isn't a virus more in alignment with a strain of avian influenza like um, H7N9 or H5N1 strain, both of which have fatality rates of 30% or higher. I think the lesson we have to learn is that this is really a test for us to reflect on our actions, because if we don't make changes, then we face something that potentially could be even worse. And that might just be climate change, or it might be uh, another another zoonotic disease that comes from a wet market in China, or a, a live animal market in New York City, or a chicken farm in Gloucestershire. And that's the problem. And that's something we also have to connect the dots with, is that these issues that we talk about are not just isolated to parts of Asia or parts of Africa. They're actually related to our mindset and our mentality and our actions as a species. And those actions, of course, being how we treat others and how we treat nature in general. That that has to be the lesson. And, and I think it is getting through. I mean, obviously, as vegans, we were the first to start talking about this. And at the beginning, there was a lot of hostility towards what we were talking about, either you know, from the media, but also just from our inner circles, I'm sure from people that were talking about this online, their friends and family probably weren't very happy at the beginning of this pandemic. But I think what we've seen in the, in the seven, eight weeks, you know, that this thing has been carrying on for, I mean, obviously, it's longer than that, but really been taken a hold of, of Western society, is we've seen that conversation evolve so much. I mean, there's an article in The Independent today, and it was even in the Daily Mail, actually, that was saying that leading scientists have said that we have to go vegan to prevent future pandemics. Now, I think to have that published in the mainstream media at this point is unbelievable. And when we've seen this kind of like trickling of 
the New York Post have talked about it. Uh, not the New York Post, sorry, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, uh, the Independent. We've seen huge media outlets actually start talking about the correlation between not just wet markets in China, but actually animal farming and animal exploitation across the world and the risk of very pernicious and violent diseases that can actually spread and become a pandemic if um, if they're, of course, of that that nature. And so it's a wake-up call, and that's the lesson that I think we really need to listen to because we're being told it so loudly right now. And if this doesn't change us, and well, I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen, and you know what could happen. And here's another thing, which is slightly it's ironic, and not in a funny sense, but in a very troubling sense, is that obviously people are stockpiling food right now, and one of the things people are stockpiling on lots of chicken breasts for the freezer, lots of bacon for the freezer, lots of pork loins, whatever. And then when we look at chicken and pig farming, those are the two systems of animal exploitation that are the most likely to create the next pandemic. And so for all we know, this this stockpiling of, of chicken products or of, of pig products is actually contributing to a situation where we may be causing the next pandemic to be happening already. Of course, it's unlikely and, and maybe slightly over-exaggerated, but the point of the matter is we just don't know when another disease is going to happen. We don't know when the next outbreak is going to occur. And every second that we are perpetuating these systems where these diseases can occur, they could occur. And so we have to act responsibly and quickly. And that's why going vegan can never be a thing that we do in the future. It always has to be something that we do instantly because every day that goes by we increase our risk of, of climate disaster of of course chronic health problems of intense suffering to animals um, of like ecological disaster but also the next zoonotic outbreak which could be the one that destroys society as we know it if we're not we're not sure perhaps we should use this time to reflect on whether or not we deny others the freedoms that we yearn for ourselves during this pandemic the freedom to see family the freedom to see friends the freedom to do what we want the freedom of being autonomous, the freedom of not being isolated, of not being confined, of not being restricted. Perhaps we should then think of the mother pigs, currently trapped inside farrowing crates and gestation crates, tiny metal cages so small that they are unable to turn around. Instead, they can only stand up and sit down for weeks, even months at a time, desperately biting on the bars, hoping they will one day break. But of course they never do, and they never will. Or what of the pigs being fattened up for slaughter, kept in tiny concrete pens? No windows, no fresh air, no sunlight. Highly intelligent beings, driven to insanity, their teeth clipped out, their tails chopped off. Or the newborn calves in the dairy industry, taken from their mothers within the first 24 hours of being born and forced to spend their first months of life in solitary confinement hutches. Unable to run and play, Instead, they suckle on the bars and call out for their mothers, desperate to be nurtured and cared for. Instead, they are trapped and alone. You talked about you know, a wake-up call and a realisation of what the implications of our actions are. But if we look back in part into the past and we look at one of the, the most deadly uh, pandemics, the 1918 Spanish flu, 50 million people died and they didn't even have aeroplanes. How can we have any hope for the future when we make the same mistakes over and over and over again as a species, generation after generation, whether it be war or the way we treat animals or the way we treat each other? How do, we, how do you keep a sense of hope that our species can change? Because there is a discussion, and Dr. Selesh Rao often talks about this, that human beings are currently in a parasitic phase 
it doesn't sound very nice to call yourself a parasite or to feel like your species is a parasite. And I have felt like I wanted to create an international campaign to have Homo sapiens sapiens reclassified as an invasive parasitic species. And I think we are, because when you look at what a parasite does, it moves into an environment or it moves into an organism and it destroys and it breaks down and it, and it kills. It doesn't replenish. It doesn't revive. It doesn't renew. And our species, for some reason, like a runaway train, has got completely out of control. Like a parasite in, you know, within an organism has proliferated and it isn't nourishing the ecosphere, the biosphere or Gaia, as you may want to call the place that we live or the earth. How do we... <laughs> keep going forward as advocates and how do we keep the hope alive in us that our species can change knowing everything we know about who we were in the past i think i mean right at the end there, i think you, you've you've touched upon the reason why we should believe that is because we should remind ourselves of who we used to be now as a society we have huge amounts of um we have we have so many ingrained problems that we need to address and there's so much that we need to do to change still but we shouldn't also disregard the fact that we look back in our history huge progressions have also occurred as well and so we need to keep going in that direction but we also have shown to ourselves that we can keep going in that direction i think with the 1918 flu yeah it killed 50 million people one of the things was obviously there's no planes but it's very important, I think, to, to recognize that after that, that flu happened, you know, we did see lots of changes in terms of how we understood viruses, how we understood the risk of pandemics, how we understood medicine, and we understood things like social distancing, which of course was implemented back then to great effect as well. What's really interesting about the social distancing thing is you can look back to 1918 and you can you can look between cities that employed social distancing and cities that didn't, and you can see the staggering differences in, in the number of fatalities based on, 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 on social distancing, which is helped us of course here in, in this current pandemic but we also changed a lot we got antibiotics after that you know we, we started to understand medicine a lot more and so we'd actually thought that we'd come out of that zoonotic disease time we we, we thought we'd pass the age of zoonotic disease and, and and viruses and and we'd enter into a new period of time and so we kind of lulled ourselves into a sense of security and i think that's why we've not had the urgency to need to reflect more because even though we've seen the rates of diseases and outbreaks increase over the past several decades, you know, coincidentally or not as the case is, you know, as factory farming and industrialized agriculture has increased, we've seen a rise in outbreaks as well. But we haven't had that shake, you know, that we had back in 1918. And this is like another shake. And thankfully, it's not as severe as, as the 1918 one, um, but it's still severe enough to, to make people realize that this is something important. And so whether we like it or not, and I think you could probably relate this to a vegan thing as well, like for me, I was aware of the problems, but I needed that shake from earthlings to really think to myself, okay, I need to do something. And so maybe for society, this coronavirus outbreak, the COVID-19, it could be that earthling shake that we all need to go, okay, I've been aware of these problems, but now I'm, I can't deny these problems even, not even, not even unconsciously. And so I think that's how we, we recognize that we can change because we've done it before. And yes, often we need catastrophic things to happen before we do change but thankfully the catastrophic one this time hasn't been catastrophic enough to to completely destroy society or even you know destroy it in, in for, for too much longer than obviously already has done but it's just catastrophic enough for us to go i don't want that to happen again and we often talk about veganism as a sacrifice that you know, people say this i don't want to give up chicken i don't want to give up um pork and bacon but actually, when you reflect it on what's happening, we've had to give up our civil liberties. We've had to give up our holidays for some. We've had to give up things that we care a lot more about than 
a piece of chicken or a piece of, of pig. And so I think now people are realizing that actually stopping something like using animals, it, it doesn't even have to be something that we view as a burden on ourselves. It's a joy because it brings happiness to others, but it also means that as a species, we don't have to worry so much about bad things happening to us again. So there's many reasons to be hopeful. There's also many reasons to not be particularly hopeful, but I think we have to focus on on, on historically the fact that we have changed. And, and And this is, I guess, the thing is like, I've seen people talking about how humans are the coronavirus of the planet, you know? And I've even seen some people saying, actually, the coronavirus is the vaccine to the human problem the planet faces, right? You know, and, you know, they're quite, they're not very pleasant. Yeah. And they're not very pleasant. And I don't think they're particularly, you know, I don't think we should worry too much about that. But the the, the interesting point of difference is obviously that things like viruses, you know, parasites, they don't have the capacity to ever change what they do. They're biologically set in their ways, you know, whereas we have the intellectual capacities, the physical capacities to, to be able to implement positive radical change. And we also have to believe in the fact that we can do that. And I strongly believe that we can. I think technology will push us in the right direction, whether that's lab-grown meat. We talk about the plant-based meats, don't we, and lab-grown meat, and they really are the solution to so much because I, mean, I, was, I was chatting with Mike the Vegan about this and he was saying, you know, we talk about lab-grown meat. There's no, there's no risk of any viruses or, or bacterias when we're producing meat in a lab. And so, I don't know. I think things like that will be a yes, game changer. Yes, so many vegans are against it, though. That's it. That's a frustrating thing. Not just vegans, but there are a lot of people who speak actively against lab-grown meat. And as a as a solution, like many things, you know, we live in a world where there are these solutions. There are so many solutions to our troubles and our problems. We have them all here at our fingertips. And I do, I have a sense of real frustration for humanity many days. I wake up and I think we could really see huge change. There's a fantastic and wonderful film called 2040. I don't know if you've watched it yet, but I really recommend it. And it talks about a time in the future in 2040. What would happen if all these positive things that we knew we could do for our world, whether it's environmentally, food waste, food uh, waste management, electricity, if we employed them all and we put them all together and we made them a reality, what kind of world would we create? And it's not a utopia where everyone's going around in their kaftans and <laughs> everything's perfect, but it's a world where there's more equality, that where animals are not used and killed and abused, where there are there is no poverty because people have enough food and they have enough opportunity and they have respect from each other and i think you know it is a beautiful thing to think that that, that is possible that we as human beings as creative and innovative creatures we can dream that world into reality and i think the main takeaway from what you said is that we have to have that hope that it is possible that yes the past was terrible and yes there were terrible pandemics and wars and violence but there are enough people in this world, and I do believe human beings are intrinsically good, that we do have compassion at our very core, that our humanity is our compassion. Compassion is humanity. It just has to be nourished and encouraged and nurtured because like a seed, if it isn't, it dies. And it's up to us, not up to us as vegans, but up to us as conscious people who believe in equality and compassion and kindness and community and love, you know, and all those kind of positive things they aren't just cute and cuddly and hippie things they're essential they are vital and they are every human being and every animal's absolute right and i believe that is at its very core what we're fighting for we're fighting for that kind of world when people talk of a vegan world that is what a vegan world is it's not a world where everyone goes to the supermarket and buys vegan food it's a where it's a world where people and animals live in harmony in peace and the earth and the, the natural world is not threatened by us, but we live as a 
symbiont rather than a parasite, that the symbiosis between the human organism and the biological biosphere, the animals and the, and the plants, there's a harmony and a symphony because at the moment it isn't any of that. Human beings use brute force to tear the heart of Gaia from the ground and literally eat it, you know, and that is the terrifying thing that I battle with personally is that darker side to who we are. But we do have the lighter side, as you said, there is that potential and there's that hope. So whoever you are, if you're listening and if you're, you know, you want to, you want to do something and you're not sure we need you, every single person to step up and speak for the earth, speak for the planet, speak for the forests and the rivers and the animals and the birds and the fish and the insects and, and stand up and, and be the voice uh, of, of the voiceless. Even though I don't like to say voiceless because animals do have a voice, but to be the ones that are not being heard perhaps is a better way to put it. Yeah, oh, whose voices are suppressed, you know? I think what you touched upon right there is really important is uh, I, I like to view things on like a spectrum and um, we need to be hopeful. So that on one, one side of the spectrum, we've got like just complete optimism, everything's fine. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have like just this complete despair, you know, everything's ruined, the planet's going to be destroyed, what's the point? Oh, it's like, almost like this nihilistic feeling potentially. And it's really important that we sit somewhere in the middle of that spectrum where we're very, we retain a sense of hope and re- retain a sense of optimism that everything will be fine, but we also don't lose touch with the fact that there's a very real chance that it won't be. And so we don't want to sway too far in either direction because one leads to apathy and the other leads to kind of complacency. So we need to make sure that we strike a balance where we have hope, but we also remind ourselves of, well, actually everything is at stake here. Everything, even from, exactly you say, from from the minute, from the lives of these insects, all the way up to the lives of mammals, up to the trees and the forests and the oceans, every step of existence is at stake. And we have to remind ourselves of that. And even if it wasn't, we should remind ourselves of even if the world was going to be fine anyway, what happens to animals would still persist unless we change mentalities. And so we have to change mentalities as the keystone to changing the world to make it better. And I think finding a line on that spectrum is, is, is difficult, but I think it's really important as well. So creating change is something we can all do. And in 2016, you created Surge, which is a, an animal rights charity or a, or a charity or grassroots organization uh, working to um, spread the vegan uh, and animal message. Tell us a little bit about how that got started and some of the the wins that you've had and the successes that you've had with it, because you've done some campaigns and you've done some a lot of videos and, and some outdoor uh, posters. Tell us a little bit more about how it all got started. That's a good question. So um, there was a group of us that wanted to, to uh, do something else. Um, I mean, there's lots of great animal rights organizations that exist, um, and lots of great ones in the UK, lots of great ones internationally. And we felt that, that we wanted to create one kind of more London-centric or UK-centric that we could use to um, to do investigations uh, for like online video content and media work. Um, and also we, the Animal Rights March as well. And so we, we set that up in 2016. And since then, we, we've done a few different things. We, we've tested tipped our feet into different areas to see what we think has good effect. Um, so we did like an ongoing campaign against London Fashion Week um, over the use of uh, fur and animal skins. I mean, I don't think they've outright banned it necessarily, but it led to um, <laughs> it led to a lot of conversation um, and led to them declaring last year was that they were going to have a fur-free catwalk, um, which was good. Um, but bigger than that, and I guess more recently, um, we started doing a lot of online media work and we've had big successes, I suppose, in in, uh, in kind of like elevating kind of what we've done before. And that's something that's really been important to us is like constantly trying to improve. And so last year we did something called 
the dismantled dairy campaign, which was uh, just about 18 months of undercover or 18 months of work um, in acquiring undercover footage from dairy farms uh, across the UK, around the UK in different areas to really build up a picture of what happens to dairy cows. Obviously, we we know what happens, but people often will talk about there being isolated cases and this one bad farmer and this one bad incident. And so it was really important to us that we painted a picture of what standard industry practice looks like on, on dairy farms everywhere and how it's a systemic problem. And part of that campaign is we, we, we got footage from the deputy president of the National Farmers Union, his dairy farm or a dairy farm that he owns. Um, and so... It was that was a really big thing for us. These investigations and trying to get people to to acknowledge the systemic problem related to animal farming, um, and now we've recently started focusing a lot on the coronavirus and producing uh, media work surrounding um, how it relates to what we do to animals. And actually, that's been really rewarding because we, the first coronavirus video we made, which was actually uh, the the video itself, was a bigger point about antibiotic resistance and talking about how looking to the future, coronavirus is is not something that long term is going to be anywhere near as destructive as antibiotic resistance will be if we don't implement changes, of course. Um, and that video topped over four million views. Um, and think 5 million across all social media platforms. And that was without ads? That was completely organic? Completely organic, which was just tremendous to see that people were, were that happy to engage with with that kind of content. And actually, a lot of the coronavirus videos we've done through the search media um, ha- have been really successful in terms of getting people to participate um, and, and, and watch it and engage. So that's been really good. Um, so that's kind of where we focused for now. Um, but it's been like an evolution of trying different things. And of course, we, we do... Um, downward dairy events or like outreach events and across uh, hopefully expanding across the world that's what we were in the process of doing um, before the pandemic occurred and we're doing like a campus rep program as well so trying to get people within universities to start doing public speaking start doing out outreach within their uh, campuses i think that's a really wonderful thing that people can do to get involved and we really want to kind of elevate um, individual groups within these campuses to give them a capability to, to spread the message in a way that they like to within their own campus environments and to engage in um, in some of those things as well. So we're just trying to expand and grow and, and go into different areas. Um, but right now with what's happening, we're definitely focused on producing online content surrounding the correlation between the pandemic and of course our exploitation of, of animals it's amazing and congratulations on all the work i've been absolutely loving all the videos and it's always such a pleasure to share your work my friend i, I love it thanks robbie that's kind thing well likewise i saw the, the video that you and klaus put together as well just about this issue um it was a great very powerful video Thank you. Yeah, we can use social media to do a lot of good, that's for sure. Offline, you run something or you run something called Unity Diner, which is a restaurant, a vegan restaurant here in London. Obviously, we're in the midst of a lockdown, so businesses are not able to operate. Is Unity operating? I've not been in town, uh, but I have been to Unity many, many times. I have many meals at Unity. I loved every single bit of it, and you know, hopefully it can continue Tell us about where Unity is at the moment and also maybe your vision a bit for what it was, what it's for. I think what's heartbreaking actually uh, is to think about how everything that we're going through right now with the lockdown and, and what's happening to, to, to businesses all around the world is obviously due to what happened, what we did to animals in the first place. So the exploitation of animals has caused this problem. As a consequence, you have all these vegan, you know, restaurants, these vegan cafes, these vegan places that are no longer able to, to, to function the way they wanted to. And so like most places in London, at Unity, we've had to, to close for the time being as well because of obviously 
these lockdown procedures that are being put in place. And so I think it's tricky to think of all these vegan businesses that will be struggling as a consequence. I know that you've done a lot of work in promoting vegan businesses that are, that are, that are potentially finding it hard right now. And I think it's really troubling to think of the fact that our exploitation of animals is now having a knock-on effect in that way. I mean, for us long-term, we've always wanted to bring back to the community and our long-term vision operating in, in the nonprofit structure is to then be able to do different things to help animals and, and the movement ultimately with with um, a sanctuary a safe haven for animals to be able to, to spend their lives in and so again the heartbreaking thing is where we're at now stagnates that progress that we want to make but i think like veganism in general we just bounce back all the time don't we and i think that's what's going to be really rewarding to see is how as a community what we have is unique because we all support each other i mean there's a group in, in near nearby well in london called made in hackney and it's like a non-profit that's producing vegan food to give to homeless and vul- well to vulnerable people during this particular pandemic and so to see that sense of community around the vegan spirit is something that's really wonderful and um, we've been very privileged to be a part of that and we'll hopefully be a part of that again once all this pandemic dies down but yeah that's another thing that we've been you know, we've we've been working on through surge for for a little while as well I look forward to it opening again. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, let's. Uh, there's a few questions that came in from the audience, so I'm just going to sort of go through them. What are your just a quick fire one? So you don't necessarily need to give too much of an answer, but what are your thoughts on the liberation pledge? Positive or not? Um, I think that it's a, a personal, individual thing. I think it, I think it's situational dependent. So, for example, if you're going to um, your friends invite you to a restaurant, the restaurant has a Beyond Meat burger. Um, they're not going to get the Beyond Meat burger, but you can go and eat like a really good like Beyond Meat vegan cheeseburger and, and then you can say, look, this is really tasty, have a bite and then they like it and then you can have productive conversations. I think that that's really good. I think if you're in a situation where you know it's going to lead to tension, it's going to lead to an argument, maybe it's family, maybe you just know it's going to happen, um, then it could be good to step off. So I don't think it's positive or negative. I think it really is situationally dependent and I don't think anyone should feel that they have to do it. But I also think that people that do do it, there's a lot of admirable reasons to do it as well. And I think it's uh, I think it's something you've got to discover based on your personal family and social interactions. I think it's a tricky one, that one. Name one famous vegan you'd love to have dinner with. I mean, I guess it's a bit cliche, but I would, I mean, I'd like to speak to Billie Eilish, right? But who who probably wouldn't, which vegan probably wouldn't. So I think, yeah, I think Billie Eilish just because of like the, the fact that she uses her platform to speak out or Lewis Hamilton's another great example of just like someone who uses the huge platform they have to talk about issues and to really spread change. I think I would have dinner with them just to express gratitude to them for doing that. Amazing. What are your, some of your favorite vegan treats? treats uh, beyond meat um definitely the sausages and the burgers i mean the sausages are just absolutely incredible um so definitely beyond burgers and beyond sausages are my favorite and if i yeah definitely those are my treats this is the, this is the curse of the pandemic right is that we yeah. just can't get hold of some of our vegan treats anymore which is sad as yeah, well yeah because because of the the workforce being paralyzed by this situation yeah before I let you go, um, I always like to my, ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island with a pig, yeah. um, obviously you're not going to eat the pig. The pig is your friend. Uh, <laughs> the pigs live for at least 25 years. So if you're stuck there for 25 years, you've got a friend for a fair amount of time. If I gave you one vegan dish and one book and one music album, what would you take with you? Wow. <laughs> my God. Wow. A dish? That's tricky. I think it would probably be... I'll say Beyond Meat Burger. I'll do that because I think that's like with chips, obviously, because that was the staple. But that's really tricky. I, I guess I could think far too much into this. So I'll probably say, I don't know. I, I really, 
I, I think it would have to be a piece of fiction. So that's probably good. But I don't want it to be something that's too downbeat. So I'd say like, I really like 1984, but I don't think I'd want to read that over and over again for eternity. <laughs> so it'd have to be something that's fairly upbeat. So oh man, I'm struggling with that one. Favorite album. <sighs> That's another tough question. I maybe what I could do is I I'd probably take. Can you take like a greatest hits compilation one? Sure. I was asked this question years ago. Actually, it's funny you mentioned it now. And I said that I would take Queen a Queen greatest hits because with the Bohemian Rhapsody track, there's so many different vocal sides to it that you could just sing each different track over and over again. And you probably would sustain yourself from going insane for a, a bit longer because there's so much to sing in that. So I'll take Queen for my sanity's sake. Amazing. Yeah. Well. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure to be here. And I thank you very much for having me on. It's been enjoyable. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Yeah. How can people follow you and find out more about what you're doing? So my website, um, which is www.earthlinged.org, shows what I'm doing. You can also contact me through there. Um, but also my Instagram, which is EarthlingEd, my Facebook, which is EarthlingEd, and, and my YouTube, which is also EarthlingEd, are the three main places you can find me. Amazing. Thanks for listening, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more fashion, veganism, animal rights, ethics, and everything in between. Bye.